Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Are you a publisher? Do you want to leave your IT troubles behind? Code.store is what you need to migrate to efficient, modern content management systems. Think of Code.store as an impartial compass in the market directing publishers to the right tools to give editors and readers the best possible experiences. Intuitive platforms which allow you to focus on your strengths. Top providers use their services and in the past year alone, they've migrated more than 7 million articles and 500 terabytes to new homes. Code.store offers you a seamless transition into the future. Get in touch with them at migrate at code.store to discover how they can support your journey. Hello and welcome to Media Confidential, Prospect Magazine's weekly exploration of the fascinating and contested world of media, talking to key people at home and abroad. I'm Alan Rusfridger. And I'm Lionel Barber. On this episode, British award-winning data journalist Mona Chalabi of the New York Times on her eye-catching work, her criticism of her own newspaper's coverage of the ongoing Gaza conflict, and making a stand at the recent ceremony in which she received the Pulitzer Prize. The night was rough. I felt very distant from my colleagues that were in the room. It felt like, um, and I have felt this for a long time, that when it comes to this particular subject, namely um, reporting on Israel and Palestine, that there's a bit of a gulf between us, basically. I just wanted to say to my colleagues in the room that no one was saying Palestine, and to not even use the word Palestine is in itself a journalistic choice. Listen and follow us wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss an episode. And Media Confidential is on X-Stroke Twitter. We are at Media Conf Pod. So, Lionel, what's in your inbox this week? Well, I've been flooded with this astonishing story from Silicon Valley over the future of OpenAI, which launched the chat GPT function which has got everybody excited, millions of users. And the man behind that, of course, is the face of AI, Sam Altman, 38 years old. And last Friday, a few days ago, he was ousted by the board, completely without any notification. Everybody was surprised. This is an $86, $90 billion worth company, and he never saw it coming. And over the weekend, there have been all sorts of twos and fro's And we've just heard Sam Altman is actually back at the company. I think this this tells you two things. One is, in the AI world, the workforce matters. I mean, they have 770 employees, 700 people wanted to stay with Altman. And two, the funny governance, which is you had a a non-profit board, one or two academics in there, who were trying to run a capped or for-profit operation, which was rapidly expanding, in which Microsoft had a large $14 billion investment. And frankly, the money won and the workers won. And Altman's back. That's quite an encouraging story in its own way. 
Well, I, th- I've, I saw uh, Sam Altman on, on stage in Sun Valley at the media conference in the summer. And I have to say, I thought he was really impressive because he's balancing the idea that you have some safety guardrails around the development of AI. You don't have robots turning into terminators and, and the sort of the end of humanity versus the many, many, and we're going to see this over the next few years, many applications of AI, which will be money gushes. I had a fascinating conversation. I met somebody who uh, knows all about AI uh, over a meal the, the other day. The depressing bit was that he said that he thought that 10 years down the track, about 85% of news content was going to be produced by AI. The the shining light uh, or the optimistic way of taking that is that the 15% that isn't uh, will be tremendously valuable. And so I think the lesson for news publishers is if you hold your nerve and you don't sack your entire workforce, there will be a premium on content that is still produced by human beings. You must keep the skills and evolve the form, the journalistic form. And I think we're going to hear from that with um, Mona Chalabi. I should say um, that Lionel and I are uh, both in London. In fact, we are in Prospect Towers, which is a stone throw from the Palace of Westminster. If you hear the throbbing of a helicopter, I think it's not actually King Charles, though sometimes it is. Uh, I suspect it's to do with the security around the state visit of the president of South Korea. So forgive the, uh, the occasional chopper in the background. Anyway, here we are at Prospect Towers, and talking of which, um, you should check out the new seasonal subscription offer for Prospect Magazine because we're discounting the price of the annual digital subscription by an astonishing 50%. So to take advantage of this great deal, please visit prospectmagazine, all one word, .co.uk slash BF. But be quick because the offer ends next Monday, the 27th of November. So this week, we're going to meet a really interesting uh, journalist. She's called Mona Chalabi. She has nearly half a million followers on Instagram for her really groundbreaking work on data graphics, data visualizations. I think she's only the second data artist in history to win the Pulitzer Prize, which is the grandest of all uh, journalistic prizes. And yet it wasn't a happy experience for her. As somebody of Arab origin, she is deeply torn at the moment about the role of journalism in the coverage of Israel stroke Gaza. And so we wanted to talk to her about winning the Pulitzer Prize, about the generation in a way that she represents, which our previous guest, Marty Barron, the executive editor of the Washington Post, felt there was a chasm opening up between the older and younger members of uh, the profession, what what journalism is to uh, people of her age, and also about her feelings about Uh, the incredibly delicate act that is involved in covering this dreadful conflict in the Middle East. So, Mona, welcome to Media Confidential. You've recently picked up the premier prize in in American, maybe global journalism, the Pulitzer Prize. I just want you to talk about uh, the mixed feelings that you had. And I know immediately afterwards, you gave away the prize money to um, a Palestinian journalist group. But what are the mixed feelings that you had in picking up this incredible prize for your incredible work? Yeah, it, it wasn't great, if I'm honest. I'm really, really grateful that I got the chance to celebrate back in May when it was announced. And I celebrated with the people who had worked on the project with me, um, the project that won. But 
Yeah, um, the night was rough. I felt very distant from my colleagues that were in the room. It felt like, um, and I have felt this for a long time, that when it comes to this particular subject, namely um, reporting on Israel and Palestine, that there's a bit of a gulf between us, basically. And I think that gulf was especially clear on the night when there was no mention made of Palestine um, Yeah, I found out an article came out over the weekend in the Washington Post about me giving away the money. And in it, the article mentioned footage can be seen of Mona crying. And I was like, what? I had no idea that the ceremony is filmed. I don't know what kind of an incredibly dull individual would want to see, like, just watch back the dinner. I just wanted to say to my colleagues in the room that No one was saying Palestine and to not even use the word Palestine is in itself a journalistic choice, right? And I really thought I was just saying it to the colleagues in the room, but apparently there's footage of it, which doesn't feel great, if I'm honest, yeah. Mona, you have talked about this conflicting emotion of feeling you deserve to be there, but you didn't really want to be there. Can you explain that tension? Yeah, I don't know if it's even necessarily not wanting to be there, but it's a feeling of not belonging. So, you know, I've had to kind of build a lot of self-confidence, I guess I would say, in in journalism. So I I do feel like I have a um, a lot of clarity now that the work that I'm doing has some kind of usefulness. Otherwise, I don't know if I could keep on doing it. So that's, I guess, the sense of deservingness. But as far as belonging, again, when you're in a room where everyone seems to be nodding along, quite contentedly to not saying the word Palestine. Everyone seems to be nodding along quite contentedly to a a very specific narrative in which genocide isn't mentioned, in which ethnic cleansing isn't mentioned, um, in which racism isn't mentioned, which is a really important dimension of understanding this, um, what is happening. Yeah, it feels like you definitely don't belong in that room. Let's go backwards and then come back to the present day, because... um... I think your journey into journalism is, is interesting. Grew up in East London. You're the daughter of first generation, second generation Iraqi. Do you know what's funny? I still never, ever, ever understand that terminology. Both of my parents were born in Iraq and moved to the UK as adults, and they both met each other in the UK. Um, and then you you stumbled into journalism. How? I ran towards it. I ran as fast as I could. I had studied international security um, at university in France. Not to get too into the weeds here, but it was a joyous experience thanks to the Erasmus scheme, which I believe, does it no longer exist, Erasmus? Britain's not in it because of Brexit. Oh, how fantastic. Um, I'm (laughs) saying that very sarcastically, I hope you know. I benefited massively from doing the Erasmus scheme. Anyway, so I moved to France, studied international security, and the goal was always to go and work for the United Nations. And I was always interested in data. As I mentioned, Lionel, I had met you while I was doing this kind of internshipy sort of thing at the Economist Intelligence Unit and really, really was fascinated by the uses of data there. So I went to go and work for the UN, very quickly became disillusioned with the work that I was doing there, partly because what I found was how dangerous echo chambers can be, especially when it comes to data, right? So asking a particular set of questions, getting a particular set of answers that reinforces the questions that you asked in the first place is very dangerous. And I understood actually that having a big audience actually results if, if you do it right, results in more honesty and more accuracy. So I knew that I wanted to have a bigger audience so that people could basically raise their hands and tell me you got it wrong. 
I did a one-day course at the Frontline Club in London on data journalism that was taught by Simon Rogers. After the course, I emailed him relentlessly and asked if I could come in and do work experience. What, what sort of date is this, Mona? Maybe 2012, actually more like 2011, around, around about then. Started working for, I did one day a week with Simon Rogers at The Guardian, which is where I met you, Ellen. And as I mentioned, mm. I want to be really, really upfront because I'm always critical about the lack of transparency and kind of networking in other journalistic spaces. I want to be clear that I know you, but not very well. I think we've only maybe had yeah. two conversations in the past. Oh, I remember I once took you out for a drink to, to stop you leaving The Guardian. You ignored me. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> but we'll come on to that. I think we should. I was in, like, that meant so much to me. That meant so, so, so much to me. Um, and we sh- and we should talk about it. But um, anyway, started working at The Guardian. Luckily for me, I say this um, quite tongue in cheek, Simon left. Not, and I say luckily, not because he was a bad boss at all, but because it kind of created this vacuum, right? Where like, there was nobody else that was the data editor. And me, even though I was relatively junior and relatively inexperienced, kind of became a go-to person for data in the newsroom. And I found it both exhilarating and terrifying I thought I was too young I was 25 at the time and like if you've landed if you're interested in doing data journalism and you've kind of become the de facto data editor at the Guardian in London that's it you've done it and I thought am I just gonna spend the next 50 years of my career just doing this um I do plan on working till I'm quite old so yeah I decided to apply I wrote to Nate Silver in the US thought I'd go and kind of continue to learn and I've spent the last 10 years over here. Okay, we should just explain Nate Silver had started an organisation called 538 because he seemed to be the guy who called every election right. He was the sort of guru who was the king of data. So he was the obvious person for a data journalist to go and work for. He was the guru or so I thought. Ethically, I don't believe that our job as journalists is to predict the future. And I think that that act of prediction becomes especially toxic and dangerous when it comes to democratic elections. So I remember not that long after I had started, it was the midterms. And I remember I was taking a taxi somewhere and the person who was driving the taxi was talking about who he wanted to vote for. And he was like, but I'm not going to vote for that guy because the numbers say he doesn't have a chance of winning. What? We're like months out still from the vote. What does that do to electoral behaviour to be told who will and won't win? Like that actually influences democratic outcomes. So that terrified me. And I also became really disillusioned with that brand of data journalism that is like everyone in that office self-described themselves as a nerd or a geek, right? And they kind of were posturing as as that being some kind of, you know, self-criticism or a humbling thing to say. But it was actually a massive boast, right? It was this idea that we are the smartest people in the room. We have access to this knowledge that you laymen over there couldn't possibly understand. And maybe we'll write up a, you know, a 10,000 word methodology of how we reached our conclusions, but it will only be accessible to the intellectual few. That's totally antithetical to my approach to journalism. If the work that you're creating isn't accessible to the broadest number possible, you are failing. And when I say accessible, I'm not just talking about the summary of your conclusions. I think you have to be able to articulate to audiences how you got there. So for me, just as big a part of my data journalism is rendering the methodology intelligible to the broadest number of people. How did I calculate this? So Mona, I'm going to butter your parsnips if you don't mind. Oh, that isn't an expression I've heard before. <laughs> <laughs> well, first, you've got a photographic memory. I mean, I, I, I think I'm really good at memorising faces and particularly conversations. And you reminded me that you had actually been in my office at the Financial Times and we'd had an exchange about 
how to read the UK economy, where I talked about the skyline uh, and the cranes outside my office. And so I'm very impressed with that. But I think I, I wanted to talk to you about data journalism itself, because at the FT, I created a new team. We used to have a statistics team. And I, I shouldn't take the credit, actually, it was colleagues. We wanted to find and discover and propagate new forms of storytelling. And if I may say, looking at your work, it's an extraordinary blend of kind of facts with art. Can you talk about that and give some examples? And I love the Jeff Bezos's wealth example. Which one, the Pillars Bride? Um, so this was a style of data journalism that I started to develop while I was at 538. Again, because I was kind of disillusioned with the style of data journalism that I was seeing. And I was also, frankly, a little bit depressed. So I would just kind of sit and draw at my desk. And it found an audience. And, and I, I wonder sometimes if I'm being intellectually dishonest when I explain the reasons why I started doing this. Like, I wonder if I'm just reverse engineering those explanations. But I really, really felt like a lot of data journalism was overstating certainty, right? And you can overstate certainty in a number of ways. You can add a decimal place and a string of numbers where it doesn't belong. Like saying, you know, there's a 95.4% chance that this candidate is going to win when millions of people haven't voted yet. I would say that's overstating certainty. And you can also overstate certainty by creating computer-generated graphics that have this kind of veneer of objectivity. And they also, like, almost give this impression that we're working with the natural sciences when very often as journalists we're working with polling, we're working with a complicated set of assumptions. I felt like creating hand-drawn illustrations would bring back in that kind of element of subjectivity, that element of uncertainty. It would build um, a more kind of intimate relationship with readers where they would develop a kind of understanding and connection with who I am and what my biases are. And I do come to things with a set of biases, absolutely. But I'm, I just want to fill in the sort of slightly missing gap here. The field of data journalism was pretty new when you entered it. I mean, p- people calling themselves data journalists was was a new thing and um, a lot of it was working with numbers and graphs and excel spreadsheets and so on and so forth but a separate field was data visualizations so that is how to actually make it sexy and and, and intelligible and these experiments that you were trying while you were 538 i don't know if instagram was running them is is that where you were publishing you were were literally working with crayons weren't you and (laughs) as well as your professional life doing whatever you're doing at 538 this new style of of visualization was branching out on instagram where you now have nearly half a million followers i don't think data journalism is new from the very first issue of the guardian that was ever published there was a there was a table that was in it about educational outcomes going back a bit that's 1821 that's before even i was born yeah Exactly. Um, And the table, we might not think of it as a form of data visualisation, but it absolutely is. You know, one of my biggest inspirations is W.E.B. Du Bois, who was creating data visualisations for the 1900 Paris World Fair. So it's been around for a long time, but you're absolutely right. There was like a cultural shift happening at the time that I was getting into journalism, where to call yourself a data journalist, to to have that be your full role, was, was relatively new. And it was sexy, right? Like, like exactly as you say, it was sought after. We're talking the day after Patrick Vallance gave evidence to the COVID Commission, where he described dealing with the Prime Minister, brackets, former editor of The Spectator, who couldn't, he just couldn't handle numbers. He didn't understand what graphs were. So I wonder if it's fair to say that when you, when you came into mainstream journalism, you found you were surrounded by English literature graduates like myself, 
and that you that you were sort of a slight oddity. I think that's true, but again, I think actually the danger of it is that there was an over-reliance on the data journalists in the room. I was actually in quite a um, a dangerous position where anything I could say, people would just gobble it up, right? There's very few people to fact check and verify what I was doing. And that that terrified me. And that's part of the reason why I decided to come to the US. It didn't necessarily make me feel lonely, I would say, because I don't think that those other people in the newsroom at The Guardian were necessarily bad at numbers. I think very often people have a negative emotional relationship with numbers where they just assume, I'm not good at this, this isn't for me. And again, that's part of me marrying artwork with data visualisation is to overcome that emotional reaction of like, oh, 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 charts, no. So 538, not a success. Catastrophic failure. But as you say, I started to post my work on Instagram while I was there. And, you know, when I first started doing it, had 100 followers, was literally in like the stationary cupboard at work, dipping tampons into ketchup to show like the rate of people that use tampons over time, much to my colleagues' confusion. Um, and by the time that I left, I had an Instagram following and I had I had a kind of audience outside of the walls of the, that organisation, which is quite an interesting situation to be in. So explain the, how you then formed a relationship with The New York Times. They'd be following you on Instagram? I think that probably is fair to say, you know, I don't know anyone on a personal basis that works there. You know, as much as I have conflicting feelings about social media, most of them negative, I think it's given me a career I think people have found my work through social media and then I've been given opportunities like an email out of the blue saying hey we're gonna create a piece of work about the wealthiest individuals in the world and would like to collaborate with you on it and that's how the Jeff Bezos piece was born see how I gave you a lovely little segue there well carry (laughs) it out Mona tell us about how you approached the question of bringing home to a wider public the stratospheric wealth of the Amazon founder? It was a really interesting commission because, you know, so often as journalists, we're trying to tell people things they may not necessarily know. But pretty much everyone knows Jeff Bezos is a filthy rich man. So actually, my job for this commission was to resensitize people to something that they already know, to make it feel surprising and new, and frankly, shocking. I'm not shy about the fact that my journalism does very often aim to elicit an emotion in people. I think emotions are underrated as well as information. So yeah, I kind of wanted it to be shocking. So I I worked with the incredible, incredible, incredible editors at the New York Times to create a series of charts that would re-reveal the scale of Bezos's wealth. And we did that through a range of techniques, including like analogies. Well, like the land. I mean, that's an extraordinary graph, if I may say, jump in here and uh, you you do it in as a sort of large square uh, with lots and lots of squares in inside, and you compare the size of the Pentagon or Walt Disney's campus to Jeff Bezos's land holding, and let's just say one is a lot bigger than the other. I actually forgot about that chart. That's funny because it was a series of charts. I forgot about that, and it's a good example because I actually didn't know that Jeff Bezos held any land before I started working on this piece. Well, Alan, I think we've got a picture of a journalist and a creator who is both passionate and rigorous in her work. And I believe, actually, talking about the passion, she she did enter 
um, her work for the Pulitzer Prize without actually telling the New York Times and actually saying that the New York Times had backed her. Mind you, that's not the first time that that's happened in the Pul- history of the Pulitzer Prize or indeed, I hear, from the New York Times. But the, the work that she actually submitted, which was the graphics surrounding Jeff Bezos's wealth, I think are magnificent. They are really clever. She just uses everyday image, whether it's a swimming pool or it's a, a blood cell or a truck or just a graphic of, of, of a map to illustrate how Bezos is a gazillion times more rich than the ordinary person earning a, a living wage. The, the illustration I loved was she worked out how long the average Amazon worker would have to work in order to get as rich as Bezos. And the answer, I think from memory, was 4.5 million years. So they would have been uh, starting to work uh, around about the time that human beings went from being four-legged creatures to two-legged creatures uh, in order to get as rich as Bezos. So she has this very vivid imagination about how to capture a subject. And there's a lot of wit in her work. She, She draws in crayon. She then puts it into Photoshop and adjusts it so that it is accurate to within a millimeter. So she's very conscious about working to the higher standards and, you know, not being attacked for for lack of rigor. So it's got both this sort of informality of, as it were, crayons and hand drawing, uh, and yet is absolutely pinpoint accurate in terms of the data. And I I think that's why she's got this huge following. It's just a very unusual approach. More from Mona Chalaby shortly on Media Confidential, including her criticism of our own paper, the New York Times, for their coverage of the Gaza conflict. Argentina has a new president, Javier Millet, who's described as an anarcho-capitalist. He promises to take a chainsaw to the economy to eradicate the excessive spending. But there's more to him than that. Isabel Hilton is one of our contributing editors who's spent a lot of time working in Argentina. And in this week's Prospect podcast, she explores what the election of a somewhat unknown entity means for the volatile Argentinian economy. He's very showy. He had this video in which he had all the Argentine ministries in stickers on the wall and he would tear them off and, you know, people would cheer. And he, So he would tear off the Ministry of Education, the Ministry of Culture, the Ministry of Environment, all gone, gone. If you do abolish ministries and you do away with the functions of the state, it's the poor who are going to be hit. But, you know, there's this desperation in Argentina that all other remedies appear to have failed. So, so let's back somebody, however implausible, who, who promises something completely different. He's certainly promising something completely different. He's talked about, you know, being radical since he was elected. To do anything that requires legislation, that's going to be more complicated. He's going to have to build coalitions. He's going to have to work with other politicians. We don't see very much, you know, evidence that he has done that in the past or that he's going to be any good at doing it. His entire campaign was pushing to extremes. And he has a whole social agenda, which is going to, again, alienate other politicians. So he's very anti-feminist. He's proposing to ban abortion. He thinks climate change is uh, nonsense. There's a lot of baggage there. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This is Media Confidential with Alan Rusbridger and Lionel Barber. And on this episode, we're talking to the Pulitzer Prize winning data journalist Mona Chalabi. And next, I wanted to find out more about her criticism of the New York Times, her own employer. On one level, she values the skill and resources of her editors and colleagues in the newsroom. But on another, she thinks the paper has been biased on Israel-Palestine and how it's covering what's happening in Gaza. I don't think that's conflicted. I think um, every journalist has worked in an organisation where they feel like on one particular subject, editors have got a bit of a blind spot. You know, there's no theory here about some kind of nefarious system of control. It's just individuals getting it right and individuals getting it wrong. And I believe that um, there are a lot of individuals who work at the Times who happen to be quite senior, who have a blind spot when it comes to Israel and Palestine, an emotional as well as an informational blind spot. And I don't see any tension between pointing that out and continuing to work with them. Can I unpack your feelings here, Um no, no, because one of the earlier interviews we did on, on this podcast was with Marty Barron, the former editor of the, the Washington Post. And he was very frank in his book that by the time he came to retire, he felt that there was a chasm opening up between his generation of editors. I think probably the same was true of Dean McKay, the former executive editor of the New York Times, and the younger people in the newsroom. And they felt that there was a new generation that came along that, that saw journalism differently. That it was about being more open about biases and, and attachments. That it was a generation of people who came into journalism to change things. Do you, do you recognise that division? And do you think that they describe it accurately? Yes. I think everything that you said is true. And I also wonder about, how can I say this in an articulate way? Did either of you watch by any chance the interview that was done on Democracy Now! with two editors at the New York Times who resigned slash were pushed out for having signed a letter in support of Palestinian human rights. No, heard about it, didn't see it. Yeah, it was an interesting interview in which one of one of the um, one of it was actually a writer, sorry, I, I believe, by the name of Jamie Jasmine 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 Hughes, Hughes and Jamie. Yeah. I'm not sure what um, his last name is. He talked about like the fact that he doesn't have a contract role at the New York Times, and therefore. He was discussing, like, what are his obligations towards this organisation, right? And I think that an added part of this has been that many, many, many journalists, the vast majority, don't have reliable full-time roles that are well-paid within institutions, right? And so many people have sought to build a career that is based on their position, their positionality, and their specific relationship with an audience, because they know they can't rely on an, on an organisation necessarily 
yeah, to honestly provide healthcare benefits, let alone a long-term income. Do you see it from the point of view of the institution? So in, in America, that there is a belief in objectivity, which you and I may not wholly share, but you've got an institution which is desperate to prove that it is as they would see it, down the middle on a subject like Israel-Palestine. And they believe that if lots of their journalists are mouthing off on social media, showing their, as they would see it, biases, uh, that people are less likely to trust the New York Times as an institution. Do you, do, I mean, do you see that argument? I see that argument. I would say that it's a disingenuous one. So Jasmine Hughes, who was who resigned, but she was effectively pushed out. You know, she was given a short amount of time in which to resign. Otherwise, she knew that she would be fired. Is an essayist. Her whole role at the New York Times is to write from a subjective perspective. She has won awards for her subjective biases, and she's allowed to mouth off on social media about all kinds of things. This is a red line. She's not allowed to mouth off on social media to say Palestinians deserve human rights, but she is allowed to mouth off, as as you say, on social media about like the treatment of black women in the US, for example. That's fine. Are there any responsibilities you think you have as a journalist contributing to The New York Times, as well as the right that you have to express your views and your work? I feel like my responsibility as a journalist is first and foremost to be truthful. So if it's the truthful position to state where I stand and to say, I don't believe what's happening is correct, I think that's actually a fulfilment of my responsibilities rather than a negation of them. Mm. Do you think that subjectivity is more healthy than objectivity? That if everybody everybody was uh, frank about their implicit feelings on, on issues, at least you would know where they were coming from. The, 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 the fault is trying to be objective, trying to pretend there is such a thing as objectivity. I don't even understand necessarily this kind of, this setting up this paradigm where it's on a spectrum and on one end there's subjectivity, on another end there's objectivity. I feel like I have an opinion or a belief. I wouldn't even say an opinion. I have a belief that the Israeli government is currently engaged in a genocidal campaign against the people of Gaza and against Palestine more broadly, that belief is based in facts. <laughs> so, I, like, there's this marriage for all of us. I, like, I, I, I genuinely don't understand. Well, I think what's different, Mona, if I could try, try to get at this, is that there are people who have very strong opinions and they write opinions and they're not always based on facts. What makes you really special, uh, and I mean it, special, is that you are actually really basing your work on statistical evidence and facts. And then you're marshalling an argument and then you're expressing extremely strong views. That makes you different. You're in the data field. You're not in the opinion pages of the New York Times. And I found it interesting earlier listening to your comments uh, in an earlier interview that you said you didn't even want to go anywhere near the opinion pages. You wanted to stay as a data journalist. And I think that's significant. Yeah, that's definitely the case, because I've seen that kind of drift happening for a lot of Arab journalists where we're no longer welcome to be reporters, but we can talk on this from a position of like identity politics or, yeah, as you say, just opinion. I guess... 
I agree with everything that you said, but I also would like to would like to say that I don't necessarily think of data as being an inherently higher form of information than other sources, right? So if you sit down, for example, with a single mother who tells you that actually, um, you know, becoming a mother while she was 16 was one of the best things that happened to her. It resulted in all of these positive outcomes. And I'm looking at a data set that says... You know, for most people who become parents in their teenage years, it has a detrimental effect on income, on education. Those two things have to hold weight. It's not that the person who's telling you about their individual experiences needs to be discredited because that's not backed up by the data. It does concern me sometimes the way that data can flatten out individual experiences and kind of silence voices. There were, I mean, moving away from your own work, there were a couple of things about the New York Times coverage of Israel-Palestine that, that particularly grated with you. And uh, do, do you want to just say what those were and why, why you saw no tension in raising that, highlighting that, and your devotion to the New York Times, a paper you admire and want to go on working for? Yeah, huge admiration, honestly. Incredible, incredible, incredible institution. If we start at a very, very, very high level, I would say like the Times, like most, most, most Western um, media outlets have framed this as an Israel-Gaza war, which is factually misleading. Um, it is a Israel-Palestine war. Um, people in the West Bank too are being affected um, massively by the violence and have been for a long time. So that's step one, it's the framing. And as I've mentioned before, that's infinitely better than the Israel-Hamas war, which is, again, a very, very false framing. But it also comes down to the language choices that are used, right? So using the term migration to describe mass displacement caused by Israeli bombardment. To describe that as migration implies a degree of voluntary movement, which is just factually false. It's the language, but it's also about the style of writing. So I don't know if you've noticed, but so frequently in the New York Times reporting right now, there will be entire sentences, frequently the, the very first sentence in an, in an article, followed by a comma, Israeli sources said, Israeli officials said, US officials said. That to me is not good journalism. To repeat wholesale what officials are saying to you and then providing the context to that, the questioning, the, the verifying much later on in the article, if at all. And what you see is that seeps in, even without quote marks throughout the body of the text. So for example, the phrase human shields has been repeated throughout New York Times reporting. There is no evidence whatsoever that Hamas has used people as human shields. And that has just been kind of swallowed now and assumed to be fact without evidence. Where, where is the fact-checking? Where is the journalism? I don't know. Is journalism reporting or is it... I'm trying to think of this distinction between reporting and fact-checking, if that distinction even exists. People who want to be unkind to that form of journalism call it stenography. It's where my East London roots are showing up. I don't know what buttering your parsnips means. I don't know what stenography means. I don't know what buttering parsnips means. I think that's 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 an FT term. It's it's a South London term. (laughs) Us North Londoners, we don't understand. What do you hope the future holds for you? you? Are there new forms of graphic visualization that you're desperate to get stuck into do you want to make films i mean what 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 are you itching to do next see before before october and actually before the pulitzers i was shifting towards tv and film i've been working on a tv show for the past three years but jeff bezos is that right that's right very awkward uh and i've also been working on a book for the past three years as well but i don't know i'm just so committed to journalism right now and it and it's a surreal time because 
don't even know if journalism is an appropriate term for what we're doing. So again, to go back to what you was describing as this distinction between an older generation and a younger generation, a younger generation who is trying to communicate information in a way that actually um, directly addresses injustice. I don't think that the reporting that I'm doing on Israel and Palestine right now is going to be achieving that. I actually think that many of us feel like our work has drifted more towards the work of, frankly, becoming historians. I think I'm I'm trying to capture the facts as accurately and honestly as I can for future generations, not for this one. Do you think, I mean, we've talked about this generational shift, and I, I've sensed with, with many young journalists, they, they go into journalism with a, with a view of what journalism is about, and then they feel incredibly frustrated in, in many of the places they work that they just can't do the journalism that they really wanted to do. Do you think that's a widespread feeling about people your age and younger? And if so, where will that frustration find relief? Are there new forms of journalism or outlets that you believe are are hopeful for the future of journalism? I do think it's partly a young old thing. And again, you see this particularly when it comes to Israel and Palestine. I don't know if you heard the leaked audio from, I believe it was Greenblatt at the ADL talking about, we don't have a left-right communications problem. We have a young old problem. We have a TikTok problem. We're losing the younger generation. So there is without a doubt a generational thing. I would also say that a key factor here is the fact that I'm not white. And a lot of journalists who come from various different marginalised groups just have felt like newsrooms... They're very often a space where certain elements of the status quo aren't questioned. You know, the status quo as it stands might serve some of those editors in certain ways. So I definitely think that that has been a frustration. And I think, frankly, a lot of us are maybe turning to individualised platforms, I guess, like TikTok, like Instagram, to reach audiences with the work that we want to make. I don't think that's a very good solution, if I'm honest, despite the fact that it has saved my career, essentially. I'm not arrogant enough to believe that I alone can do good work without a team around me. And, you know, the work that I have done at The Guardian, having those checks and balances there, having people to push back to say, I don't think that's the right title for that piece. Do you have a better source that's good? It makes all of our work better, that kind of mutual accountability. So, I think it's a difficult and painful period of transition for the industry as a whole. Mona, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, It's been a fascinating conversation, even if we never got to the bottom of what buttered parsnips are. (laughs) Thank you, Mona. Just come to South London. I'll I'll make some for you. (laughs) (laughs) Can I say the thing, though, that, Alan, I know you're trying to avoid me saying it, but I really did... You know, the reason why I'm a journalist now is because my first taste of journalism was at The Guardian. And I really did feel like you were a phenomenal editor. And I felt like, even though I was so junior, I would basically never really make eye contact with anyone. I was so shy. I felt really insecure as I was kind of trying to learn about this field. And yet I still felt respected within that institution. It's part of the reason why, by the way, coming to the US was a real shock to the system. And I'm just very, very grateful for everything that you did while I was there, including like, you know, I'd only been there for about a year. And to have the editor in chief sit me down and try to get me not to leave for the US. I was so flattered. Well, it didn't work, did it? (laughs) (laughs) You're still there. But do you remember what you said? Do you remember what you said? What did I say? 
you said the grass isn't always greener. I wasn't wrong. You wasn't wrong. The grass wasn't greener. And yet I'm still so glad that I came over here because I think long, long term it's benefited my career. That, I thought that was fascinating. Um, we, we could easily have talked for another couple of hours about the, the issues that underlie that. So this question of whether objectivity or subjectivity is a better or more honest approach is one that we, we really only began to scratch the surface there. And also this question about, you know, if an IDF or Israeli government spokesman says something, do you report it uncritically? Now, um, as I said during the interview, that there's a generation of journalists who say journalists shouldn't be stenographers. I, you don't just write down uh, what other people say. Your job is to interrogate it. I remember my colleague Nick Davis saying, you know, if somebody says the weather outside is sunny and somebody says the weather outside is raining – your job is not to write down both of them. That's stenography. Your job is to look out the window and find out for yourself. But in the context of a war, I'm sure the New York Times would say, well, you know, we need to put on the record what they're saying, whether or not we can verify it's true in the moment. Well, I think there's a problem here. If you say suddenly, I'm not going to quote what the Israeli Defense Forces are saying, because I don't believe it's true, or we can't verify it. It seems to me, number one, in a war, as you say, the fog of war, you have to take account of what both sides are saying. You also have to weigh the credibility of the source, and that's what got people in trouble with the, the missile strike on the hospital in Gaza. I think the second point is Mona is operating in a distinctly interesting greyish zone. She's not a reporter, but she's a fact-based data analyst. She doesn't want to go into opinion writing. That's a sort of a lower form. So she wants the rigor of the data journalism, but she also wants to be able to heavily comment and come at this with an argument or an activist's perspective. And that does raise some issues, although I think obviously it's, she's got more latitude than I would attribute to reporters. I think she does have a point about double standards. So I've heard her in a, in a different podcast talk about Marty Peretz, who was the editor of the owner of the New Republic, and uh, quoted him saying really, I would say outrageous things about Arab journalists and uh, Arabs, which uh, if you reversed the position, uh, would be completely unacceptable. Uh, and yet, I think her argument is, you know, he's still accepted a, a, in polite society. And, and so I think she thinks there's a double standard in relation to Arab journalists, versus people who are more broadly sympathetic towards Israel. And, you know, that, that pain, I think, is evident in, in, in everything she thinks about the world in which she's actually operating very successfully. And she makes a, a very good point about the underrepresentation of Arab journalists in American newsrooms. The other point, it's about disclosure. I mean, how many journalists I remember I was offered the chance to go on an Israeli government-sponsored trip to um, Israel to fly by helicopter over the Gaza Strip and to visit officials. And I would have gained a very important perspective, but I wouldn't have been in control of my circumstances. So I actually turned it down, did go on my own, accompanied by very experienced reporters and a senior editor, and made up my own mind thereby. So all, all in all, a fascinating uh, interview. Back, back at home, Lionel, almost daily there have been new developments about this story about who's going to end up owning the Daily Telegraph. I think we're recording today on Wednesday morning and the story today is different from the story yesterday. 
Um, summarise the, the developments. Well, Alan, um, bear with me because this is a little bit complicated. But the favourite, as it looks now, is a consortium backed by Abu Dhabi money. That's the oil-rich Gulf state. And a company called Redbird. That's a Wall Street investment firm with one of the lead players being Jeff Zucker, uh, and he ran CNN until recently. Essentially, they've come up with enough money to pay back the Barclay Brothers loan, the debt owed to Lloyds Which Bank. Is about $600 million, is it? Actually, it's more. It's $1.1 billion. Well, that's with the interest, yeah. So, right. sorry, so just to disentangle, the, the cost of the papers is about $600 million. Correct. The debt is twice that. Correct. Yeah, and on. what they're going to do tricky but interesting, is convert the debt, i.e. that loan, into equity. So by helping the Barclay brothers, releasing them of their debt, they then use that loan and convert it into equity to be owners of the Daily Telegraph. So this has meant that the process of sale organised by Goldman Sachs is now suspended and we'll have to see whether Lloyd's obviously wants its money back. So that's why they're in the driving seat at the moment. But this morning's story is that Paul Marshall, as we know him to be the owner of GB News, or the 50% owner of GB News, believes that the government may not want to have the Daily Telegraph owned by a Middle Eastern sovereign wealth fund, is this? Or is it... Or is it uh, well, it's it, actually, and shall we call it an entity? An entity. But, okay. but the <laughs> key figure is uh, Sheikh Mansour, uh, who is the owner of, wait for it, Manchester City. So I think this will be looked at by the government, by Ofcom, your favourite... Uh, My favourite regulator. ...regulator, as well as the Competition and Markets Authority. And it, it will re- revolve around, well, there is American money through Redbird, but obviously the bulk is and from... Re- and remind us who's giving Paul Marshall his money. Well, Paul Marshall makes a very valid point here. He's got his own money from his own hedge fund, Marshall Waste, and also the backing of Ken Griffin, who is a hugely successful billionaire, runs Citadel Hedge Fund, one of the most successful on Wall Street. He also owns one of the most valuable properties in London. Um, Better not say where it is. (laughs) But I suppose the question is, does it matter if British, you know, venerable titles come into into foreign ownership. I mean, Paul Marshall's ownership of GB News is in conjunction with uh, with Legatum, which is an institute based in, I think, Dubai. Uh, Rupert Murdoch owns The Times, and he is uh, an American, if not an Australian citizen, doesn't pay personal taxes here, I don't think. Uh, the Independent is now part-owned by the anglicised British son of a KGB uh, officer who has brought in the Saudis. So does does it matter if um, the Telegraph was going to be owned by money that comes from the Middle East? Well, in that context, I suppose uh, you're dealing with some fairly polluted water, so to speak. But I think the question you should ask is, what is the human rights record in these Gulf states? What commitments have they got in terms of a free press there? Just look at the record. Overall, it's certainly worthy of scrutiny. But enough that Lucy Fraser, who's the culture minister, would stop it? That would be a big decision. Um, What kind of signal would it send to other foreign investors looking to invest in Britain in other sectors? And I think the government does need to be mindful of that. However, just to let this through without any scrutiny at all seems to me wrong. (laughs) 
If you have any questions for us about the media, email them to mediaconfidential at prospectmagazine.co.uk and we'll answer a few of them in a future episode. Thank you for listening to Media Confidential, brought to you by Prospect Magazine and Fresh Air. The producer is Danny Garlick. Remember to listen and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And we're on Twitter, stroke X2, and our handle there is at MediaConfPod. Until next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.